Well, seeing uh, that video, um, you may not be aware, but the Ashfield Church uh, was so small, tiny, that they actually had to sell land in order to keep going in the 1960s. And that white building next to your morning tea area, which used to be the ANZ Bank, used to be owned, that land was owned by the church and they sold it to the bank. I think they got $30,000 for it and that enabled them to keep going. Uh, is there still outdoor furniture in the morning tea area, chairs and table? Uh, got rid of it. Got rid of it? Oh, right. Okay. Well, that was built by the Asheville Council because when they were building the new town hall and the shopping centre, they moved their offices into the Goodwood Institute and they paid us by putting that furniture up for us. So it's great when you look back and it warms my heart to be here to see the ongoing state of the congregation and its growth. Praise God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we sense that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, many faithful saints who have been here and loved you and been together, who are now waiting at the gates for us that we'll go in together to the eternal city. Please encourage us as we come to this section of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I give uh, occasional lectures on preaching and the main course I give, uh, which is down at the Presbyterian College in Melbourne, goes for 30 hours. So I'm going to sum up the 30 hours of my lectures in one statement. So here is a very, very uh, reduced executive summary. Whenever you stand to preach, always answer a question. Answer the implied question of the text or the overt question of the text. But every time you preach, you should be answering a question. Every sermon answers a question. For example, my name is David. There's a statement. What is your name? I've been married to Maxine for 48 years. To whom are you married? How long have you been married? God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How can I have eternal life? How did God show his love for the world? Now here is the question that I'm seeking to answer in this last talk before we have a break and go to lunch after our theological indigestion of the morning. And that is, why did the writer of Hebrews write Hebrews chapter 11? Now, that's not a very catchy question, isn't it? Is it? But it is a very important question. Why is Hebrews 11 here? Because the writer, the preacher, is showing what is vital about being a Christian. He is saying it is not enough to go through what I've said and tick everything that I've said in Hebrews 1 to 10. He's saying it is not enough to stand up and recite the creed. He is saying it is not enough to tick the doctrinal box. He is saying that if you are a Christian, yes, there is content to your conviction, but there is also a matching commitment to that content. So all true Christian faith is a matter of having right conviction and a matter of commitment which matches that conviction. 
Now what therefore is the Christian's conviction on the base of Hebrews 1 to 10? On the base of Hebrews 1 to 10 you would have to say that I believe that Jesus Christ is the supreme Son of God and his work needs no supplementing by me but through his work he alone through his perfect life and death brings me into relationship with God. Therefore I believe that I'm right with God for eternity, I've been purchased by God because of the work of Jesus. Now that is my conviction, that is your conviction. What is the matching commitment to that conviction? Well it is not that you abandon Jesus, it is not that you look for ways to supplement the inadequate work of Jesus. It is, the matching commitment, is that you will live focused in faith, following Jesus and being governed by him. What does that commitment look like? Now, when you ignore a read for us from Hebrews 11, so please open your Bible, because it's all about faith, isn't it? 35 times the writer preaches about faith and mentions faith in the letter to the Hebrews, but 27 times... He mentions faith here in chapter 11. In fact, I can remember teaching at PLC and we'd often teach the girls way back there in the 80s, without faith it's impossible, it's impossible, it's impossible to please God. And I wonder if they still remember that. It's verse 6, you see. Uh, Without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And so this chapter is all about faith. It's it's almost as though the preacher is saying, let me take you into the portrait gallery. Here is Abel. Here is Enoch. Here is Noah. Here is Abram. Here is Sarah. Here is Moses. Here is Gideon. Here is Rahab. And do you notice that they all have a likeness about them? They all have a conviction and they all have a commitment. They are people of faith. You say, well, what is faith? Can you define faith? And Mark Twain said, it's believing what you know ain't so. Is that what faith is? No, verse 1. Isn't it a brilliant verse? Look at it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, that is promised things, you've been made a promise, and faith is the assurance and certainty that you will receive those promised things and it is the conviction of things not seen. So when we were raising our children, I remember when we came to, to Sydney and we lived in the manse at Ashfield and Christmas would be over and virtually from Boxing Day on the kids would say, are we going to the Easter show, Dad? And I would say, yes. And they would start immediately saving their money because they'd had the promise that we were going to the Easter show and therefore the fact that we were going to the Easter show was a certainty because to receive the promise was the equivalent of entering into the benefits of the promise. So in one of the commentators I read to Abraham, the promise of God was as substantial as as its realisation. If God makes a promise, you can be absolutely certain and sure that he will do it. It's the assurance of things hoped for. I say that it will happen, therefore it will happen. That's faith. It is believing God's word of promise. But there's more. Look at verse 1. And it is the conviction of the reality of things unseen. Now, it must be very hard for people in the first century. Look, they come with me to Jerusalem. Look, there's the temple. There it is. You point to your Jesus. Oh, well Jesus isn't here. 
He's ascended to the right hand of God. But there's the temple. There it is. Bricks and mortar. I can point to it. It's visible. You can't point to Jesus. And yet, look at what this says, verse 1. It is the conviction of the reality of things unseen. The temple very visible, Jesus not visible. Now therefore, what is faith? It counts the promised future as certain and the unseen as real. So if you're a person of faith, therefore, you are governed by a promise made by an invisible person. That governs you. You have a conviction. I have a promise and I live a commitment in the light of that conviction. Now, I was married on the first, we were married on the 1st of May 1971. Am I a married man? Yes. There are still alive, unbelievably, there are still alive people who were there who can witness that we were married. I've got the wedding certificate. I know I've got a conviction that I'm a married man. What's the matching commitment? The matching commitment is that I live as a married man. I don't seek to go back to my mum and dad. I don't live as a single man. If I have a conviction that I'm married, the commitment is that I live as a married man. Now notice here, faith is a conviction and a commitment. And that conviction about promises from an unseen person is seen in faithfulness. Now look at verse 4. You see, by faith, what did Abel do? He had a conviction that he had a promise. He offered. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, what did he do? He had a warning, he had a word, he constructed. Verse 8, by faith, uh, Abraham obeyed. He had a promise and a word. Faith takes the promises of the invisible God seriously. It believes the reality of those promises and you live accordingly. Conviction and commitment. Now you say, now wait on. What is the content of Christian faith? Well, look at verses 3 to 7. In verse 3 we read this, by faith... We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. You see, we believe that the creation of the universe, you can hear all sorts of theories, can't you? But we believe that the word of God, God's word, created the universe. Now, you weren't there, I wasn't there. On what basis do you believe that? We believe that because God told us so that he created with a word. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, through he, though he died, he still speaks. So Abel's sacrifice to God was accepted, it was a blood sacrifice, and by accepting that sacrifice, God was commending blood sacrifice. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch lived a life which was pleasurable to God, of which God approved, and he did not pass through death. God simply took him because he pleased God. Verse 7, Noah heeded the warning, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his whole household. Noah heeded the warning and saved his household. 
Now therefore, what is the content of Christian faith? The content of Christian faith is the content, if you like, is that you'll believe something about creation, that God created the universe as we see with a word. You'll believe something about atonement being made right with God on the basis of blood. You'll believe that there is a life to be lived which pleases God, which is a righteous life. And you'll believe that there is a judgment which is to come, which was made clear to Noah, and he lived in the light of that judgment. Now, each of these men were governed by a conviction and acted appropriately. But that is the content of our faith, creation, atonement, pleasurable righteousness to God and warning of judgment to come. Now let's look, the writer moves on, having defined faith and telling us about the content of faith, he now looks at models of faith. And remember that these people were being urged to go back, to go back to Abraham, to go back to Moses. Uh, And so he begins with Abraham and then he moves on from Sarah to Moses. Look at verse 8. Abraham was promised a land. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. Now remember that Abraham was a man of some wealth. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. He went out as in a foreign land living in tents. Now I, I don't want to live in a tent. I'm quite happy living where I live and if I had the wealth to live in my tent where I'm comfortable, I'm not going to go out. But Abraham turns his back on all his wealth, turns his back on the land where he was known and he goes out. And in this land where he's going, he's living in tents all along the way and he's considered to be an alien. Verse 10, for why was he doing this? Because he was looking to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. You see, he's got a promise. He's got things hoped for. And he knows that this promised land is just a symbol of the great place where he's going to spend eternity in the promised land with his heavenly Father. He's got a conviction that he's received a promise and his matching commitment is that he goes out and he lives in tents. Now look at verse 11 and 12. Here we have Sarah. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful to the promise. I remember our kids going to the Sunday school at Ashfield and one day our daughter Ashley coming home with a fridge magnet and it was a fridge magnet with a really old lady. She had a button, she was really old and she's cuddling what would seem to be her great-great-grandchild. Sarah cuddles her son. And I think, yeah, that's right, isn't it? I mean, Sarah, was, she was a geriatric. Here is a couple who are in fertile geriatrics. It's like Pitwood, right? And a baby's to be born in Pitwood. Is there a labour ward in Pitwood? I don't think so. <laughs> and yet they had a promise. By faith, the promise, by faith, Sarah received power, verse 11, to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man... And him, as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as in innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Sarah conceived because she believed that God was faithful to his promise and faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I've got a promise that I'm, we're going to have descendants more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the sky and here we are, very aged indeed. Geriatrics. But we believe. 
I've got the assurance of things hoped for because I've got a promise from the unseen God. Did they see the fulfilment of their promise? Of course they didn't. Oh, they saw Isaac, but they didn't see descendants as the stars and the sand. But their future, their focus was future. Look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God's made a great promise. He's going to bring them into his relationship in a heavenly city for eternity. And the promised land is just indicative of that. And they believed the promise. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. But Isaac is the only way that he can have any descendants. And yet Abraham was willing to do what God says. He who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. God hadn't done that yet in Abraham's life. But it's not my problem, I'll offer him up. God will fulfil his promise and God can raise Isaac from the dead in order to do so. Abraham was governed by the promises of God, the assurance of things hoped for, a promises made by an invisible person. And look at what he says there about Isaac. Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau. So Isaac's got a view to the future. And when Jacob comes along, see what it says in verse 21, he blesses the sons of Joseph. And when Joseph comes along, he knows that he's not going to die in the land of promise, so he leaves orders that his bones are to be taken back to the land of promise. So what is it about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph? They're future looking. They're not looking back. See, the preacher's saying, these people are wanting you to go back. But those you're going back to are living forward. They're looking forward to the city. Now let's take the example of Moses. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they weren't afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Wouldn't you rather live in Pharaoh's palace? Of course it was more comfortable. He considered, verse 26, the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he had an assurance about things hoped for. He had an assurance about a promise that was made. He was looking to the reward. He went on, verse 27, seeing him who is invisible, He hears, verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover, he sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. He was governed by the word of promise. He had the Passover blood applied to the door frames. He had a conviction about the promise and he had a matching commitment. He turned his back on comfort. He applied the blood to the Passover of the Passover to the door frames and he set out to the promised land. The promise was enough. Someone said, it is the title deed of the thing hoped for. And look at all these people in verses 32 to 34. They are similarly people of faith. Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, Samuel, the prophets. They're all future focused. 
And yet the writer says of all of them, verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Did you get the city? Did you get the land? No. So where are they now? Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. They're not in the city now. They're waiting for us at the gate. We don't want them to, don't want, any, don't want you to think, the preacher says, that they've gone before us and entered into the great city as though they're superior to us and we're inferior, still waiting our turn. No, they haven't gone in. We're going in together and they're waiting for us to come so that we might go in together. Go back to them, they've gone forward and they're waiting at the gates of the eternal city. Don't go back, that apart from us, they should not be perfect. Heroes, future-oriented. Here's the the song that we're going to be singing at my funeral. I'm looking forward to that funeral. It should be good. I think think it is the finest song of the modern generation. There is a a higher throne. What a great one. Where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. And I can remember the great saints of Ashfield, Eileen Townsend, Merle Harris, the Tub Sisters, faithful Christian ladies. Where are they? They're at the gate. They believed. They had the assurance of things promised. And they are waiting for us. These are people of faith, taking the invisible promise giver and his promise seriously. God cannot be seen. Jesus is at the right hand of God. He promises that through Jesus he'll take you to the eternal city. Do you believe it? Uh, Last year, uh, my brother-in-law, who was like, I don't have a brother, but he was my brother, my brother-in-law, and he's suffering from pancreatic cancer. And the last time I saw him, a lovely, godly, lovely man, I said to him, he's lying sort of semi-conscious, and I said, Peter, I said, remember that this world is as close to hell as a believer will ever come and this world is as close to heaven as an unbeliever will ever come. And he sat bolt upright and he said, tell me that again. (laughs) And I told him that again. It's the great truth. Look at verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Here it is. Faith is knowing things that have promised, things hoped for, the assurance that I have them and the conviction of things not seen. Knowing that the invisible has made a promise and it will be fulfilled. And that involves a conviction about the invisible and about the promise and it involves a a commitment that I live looking for the day. Now come with me, if you would, to verse 18 of chapter 12. So let's flip over to chapter 12. And here, this is what the writer says. (coughs) Look, you have not come to what may be touched. You haven't come to a blazing fire and darkness, gloom and a tempest, verse 18 of chapter 12. The sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. In other words, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. It's looking back to the old covenant. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come, you have come to that. You have come to Mount Zion, 
and you'd come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. The promised land is just a foretaste of that. You've come to the uh, assembly of the firstborn and they're waiting for you. And they're shouting, keep going, keep going. We're between redemption and reward. Keep going. The promised land is promised. There is a reward. I look to heaven and I go out and live in tents. And I live as an alien in the land. Is this your experience? Is this your conviction? Here's your commitment. Look at the way he sums up. He will never let truth be unapplied. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look, friends, I can remember in my 30s going and burying people and going home thinking, I don't want to die yet, I've got my children. But I can tell you, I know far more many people over there now than people who are here. I hear old Chapo, he's over there. And Marcus Lone, he's over there. And Donald Campbell, he's over there. And they're waiting. And they're shouting out and saying, keep going. Don't go back. Don't be absorbed into the world. Don't let the world tantalise you by its amusements and by its wealth. Keep going. Now notice, the writer puts this in athletic terms. It's as though there's a race and there are three rules for this race. Look at verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us lay aside every weight of sin, every unworthy ambition, every deceptive amusement, every promise which is contrary to the promise of God. Be ruthless. They cling to you. Your greatest enemy is you. I love that when Martin Luther was asked, which is, the, which is the worst Pope you've ever had to face? He said, the Pope within me. The great enemy is within me. So this will keep hold of you. Don't let it divert you. Cast it off. Lay it aside. Secondly, notice he says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. I remember at Moore College, the man who taught Old Testament in those days, his name was Bill Dumbrell. He's a brilliant man. He was a genius. And when he was about to retire, they asked him how he was going to live in retirement. He said, I'm going to live according to three motifs. That's how brilliant people speak, motifs, themes. He said, the three motifs are don't whine, don't shine, don't recline. <laughs> don't whine, W-H-I-N-E, don't complain under your lot in life. Don't shine, don't seek to excel in a way that everybody can see that's obvious to everyone else. And don't recline, never, never give up doing good. Persevere in goodness. Run with endurance. Don't whine. Don't shine. Don't recline. It's part of our commitment, our conviction and our commitment. And then he says, verses 2 and 3, looking to Jesus. He's at the finish line. He's in the city. 
the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on him. Look to him. When old Broughton Knox was in uh, those uh, first year doctrine at Moore College, Dr Knox, he was a bit of a traditionalist. Is there a song, a modern song that you like? Yes. I like the song that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of the earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. (coughs) And when they lowered his body into the ground at Northern Suburbs Cemetery, those who were present around the coffin sang that song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Take the promise of the invisible one seriously. They were being encouraged to turn back to the old covenant. We are constantly under threat of turning back to the world. Are you a person of faith? Are you governed by the promise, a conviction of the reality of the promise and a commitment to run the race looking to Jesus? The Apostle Paul said, fix your eyes, not on the seen but on the unseen, for the seen is temporary, but the unseen promise is eternal. That's what faith is. As old Billy Graham used to say, God says it in his word, I believe that in my heart, that settles it in my mind. Are you a person of faith? Uh, I've got a particular interest in 4th century history of the Roman Empire. In the 4th century there was a Christian by the name of John Chrysostom. He was a great preacher. On one occasion he was under threat by the Roman Emperor Arcadius and he was being urged to turn his back on Christ. Listen to this interaction. Arcadius said, Recant or I will confiscate your property. Chrysostom, you cannot for my treasure is in Christ. Arcadius, I will take your home. Chrysostom, you cannot, for my home is in heaven. I will take your life. Chrysostom, you cannot, for that will send me to be with my Saviour. Why Hebrews 11? Because you need to have a conviction about these truths. But you also need to have a matching commitment. Don't go back. Don't be sidetracked. There is a cloud of faithful ones and they are waiting for you and they are urging you on. Look to Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the encouragement of a morning like this, being in your word and being able to praise you and sing your praise and then being able to pass to one another. So we pray, our Heavenly Father, that we would be people of this conviction, the assurance of things promised hope for, a conviction of things unseen and invisible. Help us, we pray, in the power of your spirit to live in commitment, the commitment which matches that conviction, we pray, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, David.